Hello, does the music sound familiar? Yes, it's inspired by Sitting in the Park, you know, this song written and performed by Billy Stewart in 1965. Because in this podcast, corresponding to the December issue of AJPH, we will be talking about the role of public parks in the prevention of skin cancer, of course, but also the many chronic health consequences of sedentarity, such as obesity. I am Alfredo Morabia, the editor-in-chief of the journal, and this is November 8th, 2017. We will start with an intriguing initiative called Park RX America. Dr. Robert Zarr, its founder and director, will explain what he calls a nature deficit and how, in his view, using parks can be prescribed as any other care to the benefit of the patient and the community. I will then review with Dr. Dave Buller from Denver, Colorado, a randomized intervention study that he publishes this month in AJPH, and which is aimed at establishing whether building sales, providing shade in parks, increases the use of parks. His work shows how difficult it is to intervene on the built environment, but also how consequential the findings can be. Finally, with Caroline Heckman from the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, we will discuss the importance of providing shade to prevent skin cancer. I'm now calling Dr. Robert Zarr. My name is Dr. Robert Zarr, and I am a pediatrician at Unity Healthcare in Washington, D.C. I am also the founder and medical director of a national nonprofit called Park Rx America, to be found at parkrxamerica.org. Tell me, uh, you start your editorial in the last issue of AJPH by talking about nature deficit. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, it's a concept that was actually coined by Richard Louvre um, when he was writing and then publishing his book, Last Child in the Woods. And it's a term that is being used rather commonly now because of the busyness of our lives indoors and this deficit of time spent outdoors in natural settings. So we know that the average American spends about 90% of his or her time indoors, and that's true for both adults and kids. Um, and usually this time spent indoors is not immersed in a natural setting indoors. Uh, usually this time spent indoors has often a component of, of sedentary behavior and oftentimes coupled with uh, eating or drinking something, and also oftentimes coupled with some sort of virtual world that's usually through an electronic device. And so what are the public health consequences of, of this nature deficit? Well, for one thing, we are in the middle of an epidemic of chronic disease. And when I say chronic disease, to those of us in public health, we think of some pretty obvious ones like obesity and overweight, depression, anxiety, attention deficit, 
Um, it can also certainly lead to uh, an increase in diabetes, an increase in hypertension, which are independent risk factors for developing cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular accidents. So we now are in the midst of a, a new epidemic uh, that is being really quite significantly uh, exacerbated by our behavior, and particularly with our behavior, meaning that we spend uh, massive amounts of our, of our time indoors and uh, not moving. I see. And so uh, your organization, the Park RX America, which stands for Park Prescription, so are you uh, prescribing parks to communities? Absolutely. So as a as a pediatrician, uh, I am daily involved in in in, in providing uh, frontline primary care to low income patients living in and around Washington D.C. And in my personal life, uh, in terms of what I do as a pediatrician, I am very much involved in asking patients, you know, what it is their nature dose is, how much time do they spend outdoors, what do they do when they're outdoors, to get a good idea of their routine. And if I feel there's a deficit there, um, I really lean on the stages of change model um, to see where they are in their readiness to make a change. And if they're ready to, if I feel like they're ready to hear some advice in terms of a specific park prescription, then I will do that. I will actually write a prescription, and it's not any different than, frankly, the prescription that I would write for a medication. Um, it, you know, has a formulation, which in this case would be a park, particular park. Uh, oftentimes, it could be a neighborhood park. It could be their backyard, but some sort of natural space. Um, the prescription will have some uh, dose to it, so how long do I expect them to be in that space? In, and also in terms of an activity, so it might it might, it might just be they're just sitting outdoors. They might be engaged in some activity outdoors, and then it needs to also uh, have some specificity in terms of the frequency. So once, two, three times a week, every day. Um, so that's the, what the prescription looks like. Really, no different than any any other prescription, except the medication in this case is nature. Very interesting. And so in uh, this issue, we we publish a. Uh, an intervention uh, carried out in, in Australia and, and in Colorado, in which they they build uh, they build sails uh, for shade in parks. W would those sails help you for your prescriptions? Absolutely, there there there's definitely um, really good evidence that um, providing shade, you know, will enhance the use of a green area, and and I applaud. The researchers who are looking into that. Um, you know, my issue is more with uh, not so much how to create shade, as that is an important issue, but rather what to do with that space, what to do in that space, and how to engage communities with that space. Um, so Parker X America is really committed to partnering with these park agencies uh, and the organizations that provide clinical services so that we can really make it easy for the clinical world to make these prescriptions to parks, uh, which is really the mainstay, the foundation of green space in most cities where we're going to find uh, this, uh, this kind of behavior happening. Um, I also want to just add that, you know, Australia is the first place in the world where they coined the term healthy parks, healthy people. 
uh, which the U.S. has now adopted for many years within the National Park Service. And Park Prescription, or Park Rx, is part of Healthy Parks, Healthy People. Um, and that's really where my first inspirations came from, where uh, the origins really were, for in, were in Australia. Mm -hmm. And would it be equivalent, in your view, to build sails or to, build, or to uh, plant trees, for example? To get shade. Well, so in my work as a pediatrician, a public health pediatrician, you know what I've what I've been doing very, very with with a lot of intensity is is learning from my colleagues in in, in horticulture, uh, the arborists, environmentalists, the conservationists, and and I am sort of deeply concerned and very interested in the welfare of trees in particular. Um, trees, uh, you know, from from a very basic uh, public health level here, you know, provides so much for our communities and frankly for the planet. And, you know, I've been focusing particularly on uh, the, um, the interactions that one has in green space where there are trees from a health perspective. Um, the article is really looking at the advantages of using trees to shade versus shade sales in that trees offer so much more uh, than do uh, an artificial form of shading. And trees, depending on the species, if it's a native species, they can last for decades. Uh, of course, they require maintenance, as anything does these days, but it is an enormous resource um, to us and generates so much more in terms of value, both to the environment as well as to our human health. But what about uh, allergies in the spring? I mean, if some people have allergies, would, wouldn't sales be helpful also? I get asked this question oftentimes, what about allergies? And as it turns out, I think one of the areas that hasn't been um, very well explained is the comparison of outside time to indoor time in terms of exposure to allergens. And I think that we probably underestimate to a great extent the kinds of exposure we actually have indoors from uh, the off-gassing of chemicals that are used in furniture to air fresheners to dust to mold to mildew to lots of indoor air pollutants. So, you know, I wouldn't I, I'm not an allergist and I wouldn't be one to suggest uh, that we disregard the issue of allergens as they relate to trees. but. I would also ask that we very closely look at the risk-benefit ratio, especially when we're discussing outdoor-indoor time, as it relates to people with allergies. Um, I oh, that's for, a good thing. Yeah, I for one. I, yeah, yeah, I, I for one, as a clinician, you know, remind my patients that you know, and these are I'm talking about patients with you know severe you know atopic dermatitis and 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 asthma and allergic rhinitis with this atopic triad that they really look first at at their at their indoor space especially where they sleep so we work on those environmental issues indoors but i don't discourage them from going outside because i really do think we have to weigh the, weigh the risks and benefits and i think the benefits probably in the long run way way outweigh the risks um for them in terms of their us, other risk profiles i understand and where are you now? So I live and work in Washington, D.C., and uh, literally I am sitting on the rooftop of a four-story 
Community Health Center, um, just about a mile or two from the White House. I'm just up on 14th Street and and Irving in Northwest Washington, D.C. Are there trees around you? Um, there are trees around me. I can see trees. Um, they're not trees above me at the very moment. Um, one of the problems in this particular neighborhood has been the rapid development uh, without much regard for the green space that we need to, to be right around us. So the nearest mm -hmm. green space to me, which I would consider a, an excellent source of nature, uh, would be Meridian Hill Park, um, known to many in the community still as Malcolm X, Car Malcolm X Park or Freedom Park, which is about a seven and a half to eight minute walk from here, which is where I often go. Um, but for fear of, of a little too much outside noise, I decided to stay on, on the rooftop, which is something I don't normally do too much of. I appreciate that. Dr. Zar, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Moravia, for the interview. I'm now calling Dave Buller. Uh, David Buller, a senior scientist at a health communication research firm named Climbundle Incorporated. And we're located in Golden, Colorado. And now you're in Colorado right now. Correct. I'm sitting looking out at the uh, beautiful sunshine. Do you see trees? <laughs> there are trees. Are there shade sails? Uh, not right where I'm looking. I'm looking at an interstate highway. Okay. And so uh, you're an expert on something very interesting, which is uh, intervening on built environment to prevent skin cancer, right? Yes. Uh, we've, we've done uh, research not only on built environment, but on other forms of uh, community-based interventions in schools and workplaces for sun protection, for skin cancer prevention. But what does it mean, built environment? Well, built environment typically means the types of structures or design of, uh, of an environment that has been created by humans. Uh, so it could be both uh, the layout or the positioning of structures like buildings or the layout of a park or the positioning of, say, a recreation uh, location like a, a ball field. Um, it also, uh, in the health area, has been things like trails and other things that people use for physical activity. But it's basically the idea that some parts of our environment are designed by humans and uh, we create uh, structures within them uh, that influence uh, our perceptions, influence the way we act. Uh, and so in, in our case, we're interested in those types of designed environments and how they might influence how people engage in sun protection uh, for skin cancer prevention. So, for example, when you, you build a, a sail uh, that provides shades in, in a park for people, uh, you know, to be protected from the sun, this is intervening on the built environment to prevent yeah. skin cancer, right? Yes, exactly. So is there evidence that intervening on the built environment works better than promoting individual protection, like use of sunscreen, you know? You know, in the sun protection area specifically, I would say there are hints of that. There's a little bit of, of uh, 
information, particularly with groups like adolescents who we know are particularly uh, unlikely to engage in sun protection relative to, say, uh, older adults, that if you put a shade sale, say, on a school grounds, uh, my colleague Suzanne Dobinson, who worked on my uh, on the research with me, uh, has found in school environments that, that the, the adolescent students will use shaded environments, even though they don't necessarily see it as a decision they're making for sun protection in the sense of skin cancer prevention. Yeah, just because it's more comfortable, probably. Yes, yes. And in fact, we do believe that people choose to use shade as a way to regulate temperature, particularly body temperature, uh, that comes from the uh, very uh, intense uh, feelings of heat from the sun. And it's because of this dearth of evidence that your study is so innovative, right? Uh, we believe so. Uh, there's, you know, built environments are, are difficult to study in any prospective way because they cost usually a, a quite a bit of money to alter. Uh, and so we're often left with having to look and see if there's a correlation, say, between parks with more shade from any source, say trees that we've planted or shade structures versus parks that don't have shade. And in this case, we were able to prospectively uh, uh, apply the shade structure as a classic intervention within the built environment. So tell us a little bit more about the design of this uh, randomized intervention. Yes, what we did was we uh, identified parks in two cities in Denver, Colorado, and in Melbourne, Australia, where my colleague Suzanne Dobin Dobinson is with the Cancer Council of Victoria. And we located parks that had what we called passive recreation areas that were unshaded. And those are things where people typically go for outdoor recreation, but sp spend some time in them, say, picnic uh, areas with picnic tables or areas with benches or or places you would stand to watch a spec uh, a spectator sport or to sit to watch that and then what we did was we we identified uh, uh, a group of those in each city and we then randomized uh, randomly selected one out of every three of those parks uh, with a passive recreation area that was unshaded to have the shades sale built in that passive recreation area. And so in order to assess the effect of it, what we did was in one summer, we sent trained research staff out who observed the use of those areas within the park, looked at the number at, at whether people were using them or not, how many people were using them. Uh, in a half an hour period, and then and we did that four times in the summer to represent different week weekend days, and then uh, in between that summer and the next summer, those uh, parks that were selected for the for the shade sale had the shade sale constructed over that pe passive recreation area, working with the the parks department staff from those cities. Quite a huge endeavor, right? Yes, we we built 18 shade sales in both cities, and that was quite uh, intense uh, because we not only had to 
design them and work with a, a construction firm, but they had to work through all of the permitting and engineering that the city required to have a, a structure like this. And then at the end, in that next summer after they were built, we sent our staff out again to record usage of those areas, looking to see if there was a difference in usage from uh, pre to post test in those that got the shade sale constructed versus those that remained unshaded. Very, very impressive, yeah. So that was the trial design. And so uh, what, did, what did you find? Well, we found basically that uh, as we had hypothesized, the shaded areas by, in the post-test were used, were more likely to be used by someone uh, than uh, the unshaded passive recreation areas in those parks. And, uh, and by someone, I mean that at least someone during the half an hour stopped and used that area. They might have used it for the whole half hour, or they might have just stopped in, say, when they were going by running or, or uh, say, walking their dog or, or something like that. They would sit in the passive recreation area. So we found that there was definitely an increase in the use of those shaded areas over the ones that remained unshaded. Our control group remained unshaded, and they basically, the usage of those areas it remained unchanged from pre-test to post-test. Uh, they they were used uh, in about you know one about you know ten or fifteen percent of the time we would see someone use those areas during one of our observations. Uh, but when it came to uh, the shaded areas, we had an increase in in the uh, shaded areas uh, in terms of their use. So would you say it's it's something to promote uh, building those uh, shade sails in parks all over the country? I, I actually do believe this is good evidence that they're worth uh, building. And, and the reason I say that is because it, shaded sails, we believe, not only provide some uh, you know, these shaded areas that people can use, particularly if they don't plan on being outdoors or they don't plan ahead to say have have a hat with them or sunscreen and they're going to be outside for an extended period of time they can go under the shade sail and there's a considerable reduction in uv levels under the shade now that it's not perfect it's not like being indoors but it's certainly a substantial reduction in the uv levels uh and so it, it may appeal to uh, may be useful for people that aren't planning on sun protection. It may also appeal to people that maybe don't always do sun protection, but use it, like I said, for body temperature control because it's, it feels very hot outside and then they need to cool off. That gives them uh, some sun protection while they're doing that as well. Yeah, and we can imagine the parents with with their kids, you know, they, they would be much better under the sail than uh, having to, you know, cover their children with sunscreen and, and, and control them. I mean, yes, it seems, seems like very, but uh, one thing that uh, surprised you too in, in this study is that you were expecting the Australian in Melbourne to use those sales much more than the neighbors from Denver, but actually it's the opposite. Your neighbors were more interested in those sales than the Australian. How do you explain that? Well, that's that, yes, that was what we thought was the most interesting and unexpected finding that we found that we saw in the data. Um, yes, you're right. We did expect uh, 
that the Australian, the use in Australia would be higher, in part because they've had a history of over 25 years of comprehensive campaigning on sun protection uh, throughout the country. And, and it started in Victoria, where Melbourne is located. And so we felt that because there's evidence that the norms have changed around sun protection more uh, dramatically among the Australians than the Americans, and because uh, there has been this promotion of shade along with, say, uh, protective clothing, hats, and sunscreen that we would see that they would respond more when the new, when that shade uh, sale was uh, constructed. But it, like you said, it did happen more here in Denver that we saw a greater increase here. We, we speculate in the paper about three ways we might explain that. Um, one might be, uh, that, um, and, and this might have something to do with the design or, or the sample in, in Australia, we were in some parks. We had a few more parks that were in suburban areas than in the very urbanized areas of uh, that we had here in Denver. And there's some evidence that in urban areas where people have less yard space, they tend to be out in the parks more. And so it may be that the parks just overall had lower use uh, in Australia than here in Denver. Um, but we also, uh, you know, had of some cooler weather in, in Australia a little bit than in Denver, and that might have because if it gets cooler, there's some evidence in the shade literature that people tend not to seek shade when it's cool outside. Uh, but I think more uh, probably maybe the most likely explanation is that because of the lesser campaigning here in the United States, and in particular in Denver, we may have fewer shaded areas already, and not just in parks, but anywhere. Uh, and that as a result, when we built a shade sale, it was more novel, more noticeable, something that was seen as out of the ordinary by people who went to the parks. And so they gravitated to those because there weren't as many options for shade uh, as maybe there is in Australia, where there already uh, have many options for shade, uh, or they themselves you know, don't go out in the midday hours. So um, we think that maybe there's a little more area, uh, you know, more more room to move the needle here in in the United States and particularly in Colorado by building shade. Uh, that's not to say that there should we shouldn't build shade in Australia and our Australian colleagues very much believe in it and still promote it. But it may be that when it comes to the investment, the investment is maybe going to have greater payoffs in Denver, at least in the short term. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And also in Denver, people like very much to go in nature, walk in park, use trails, etc. You should come to New York City and try it here, okay? Well, you know, that's interesting you say that. Uh, your mayor uh, penned an article recently on, on uh, built environments uh, for um, transportation and physical activity that appeared in The Lancet. And he um, was arguing that that investments in public parks are going to be made here in the United States, very large investments. And we know from other data that it's considered a desirable feature for public parks by a lot of Americans. And so it would be great to see him investing in shade as well as other mayors and and all around the country as they up, as they just do normal renovations and upgrades to their parks. Absolutely. That would be great.
Listen, Dave, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for that great study. And as we say at the journal, you know, intervening in real life is very difficult, but uh, results are very consequential. And this is a beautiful study. Well, Thanks. wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm now calling Carolyn Heckman. Hello. Hello. Yes. Okay, yes. I hear you. Sorry about that. Great, 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 Carolyn. Finally. <laughs> you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, perfect, perfect. Where are you, Carolyn? I am at work. And where is work? So this is uh, Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay. And so you're an associate professor there and uh, you're an expert in uh, skin cancer, right? Yes. Skin, behavioral skin cancer prevention. Okay. And uh, so we're talking about shade and shade sales in, in this uh, podcast. Uh do the U.S. have a growing deficit of shade? Well, I don't know the answer to that for sure, but I think that the U.S. probably has too little shade, and probably it's it's decreasing with um, cities growing and um, green spaces decreasing. There's probably less shade from shade trees specifically. Is shade, I mean, this uh, shade deficit uh, related to climate change, or is it uh, more important because of climate change? What would you say? I think so. And of course, I mean, shade is important because it's one of the components in uh, skin cancer prevention. It's a way we can protect ourselves from ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Um, and in terms of climate change, uh, so the, the upper ozone layer has been, um, being depleted recently because of climate change. And the, that ozone layer serves as, uh, a sunscreen for the Earth's surface. And so as that decreases, um, you know, we, you, humans are more exposed to UV radiation, which causes skin cancer. So, um, we, mm -hmm. we need more shade. Protect us from. And is there evidence of a connection between climate change and and skin cancer? I don't know if there's a direct evidence, but I, I mean, I think you know we scientists know that climate change is increasing, and skin cancer has also been increasing for the past several decades. Um, you know, that could be for a number of reasons, but, but the main cause of skin cancer is ultraviolet radiation. So it's, for the most part, it's preventable. Um, if people, you know, protect themselves by using shade and other methods like, like sunscreen and, and clothing. What about urban sprawl that has been, uh, increasing also lately? Uh, is it, uh, I mean, do we lose trees in the process and, and, yeah, Green areas, yeah it seems to be, or it has been that way. Um, I, in preparing for this, I, I found a term, urban heat islands. So um, 
where there are just uh, roads and buildings that that can trap the heat um, at the Earth's surface, whereas greenery and water can uh, are cooler. Um, so, you know, we we feel cooler if we have shade, and um, you know, now there are some uh, urban planners who maybe are planning more more shade spaces, but perhaps not as much in uh, really uh, poorer urban areas. I mean, this could be a, considered a social justice is, issue as well, because um, they wouldn't have as many resources for nice parks with shade sales and things like that. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And the, the last point is uh, that you mentioned in your editorial in this issue of AJPH is uh, is the connection between shade and obesity. So, so how are those related? Right. So, of course, in the U.S., we have an obesity problem, and uh, we need people to be exercising more. And, uh, you know, people often exercise outside. And um, the more appealing and comfortable we can make it outside, the more likely people would be to exercise. So, if we have more shade, then people might be more likely to exercise in hot climates and um, hot seasons. Um, so we want to do everything we can to increase exercise, and, and shade would be one way. Got it. And so how can we increase shade? What, what are the options that we have? A combination of approaches is, is ideal if possible. Um, shade sales pro uh, provide the best um, UV protection compared to trees, um, but trees, trees, you know, are appealing. People like them. They make people happy. Um, they're, they're just not, their protection is a little more variable. So they can be used in combination um, around the shade sale. Trees can be um, on the side to block out um, sun from the side and reflection. So that's helpful. Um, and then, of course, you know, there can be other kinds of shade structures, uh, you know, with metal roofs and things like that. So those are all um, useful in, in different situations and ideally can be used in combination. Okay. Carolyn, thank you very much. I appreciate sure. it. Thank you for your time. And, You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, take care. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Note that to be immediately informed about the papers soon to be published in AJPH or about calls for paper, follow me on Twitter. The music is by Francis Jacob. Thank you for listening. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. And for more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at AJPH.org or subscribe on your podcast app.